Warning. We have nothing new to say. Propaganda is not, and cannot be, but the incessant repetition of those principles that must guide our conduct in the diverse circumstances of life. Hence, we will restate, with more or less different words but along the same lines, our old revolutionary anarchist socialist program. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong podcast. Seriously Wrong. You get it, Sean? I was saying... The first time, I was, yeah, the first time it was descriptive words, and the second time it was a proper noun. Yeah, I just came up with that as I was saying it. And we are the wrong boys. The wrong boys. Yeah, that's Sean. I'm Aaron. Wrong boys. Our guest this week, Zoe Baker, anarcho-pack from YouTube, is not wrong. Yeah, she's very right. If she had a podcast, it'd be called Seriously Correct. I mean, I wouldn't, like, she can name it whatever she wanted, but that would be my suggestion. <laughs> yeah, we're not dictating <laughs> podcast names, but if you were introducing it, you could say, welcome back to the Seriously Correct podcast. And then, yeah. The, yeah, the name. It could be Seriously Correct as a proper name, or it could just be, like, a different name, like the Zoe Baker podcast or whatever. We'll leave that to her. Yeah, anarchy <laughs> is all about self-determination, right? So... Maybe not all about it, but a lot of it. Yeah, and I guess anarchy has like a few different definitions, definition wobble, but at the very least, anarchism, the ideology, uh, is about, to a great degree, self-determination. And so, yeah, this week, the universe has conspired through a variety of forces to bring the Seriously Wrong podcast world and Zoe Baker Internet YouTube world together in a confluence of an interview and discussion around Malatesta's anarchist program which is not just the singular vision of Malatesta, but was actually a collection of ideas from the greater sort of senius, you know, it's Brian Eno's term for genius of a community. Malatesta's anarchist program is the boiled down by Malatesta as an editor, senius of the anarchist community in the 1890s. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because you read this and you're like, damn, this is a lot of wisdom. Did Malatesta invent all of this himself? But no, yeah, right. It's coming from the group intelligence of anarchists at the time putting their heads together. And I should say that the universe conspired to make this happen by giving us all individual agency and experiences leading through a long time life trajectory, this beautiful life dance that has brought us through all these different phases, as it does in all of our lives. But in a psychedelic unfolding differentiation of the natural universe kind of way, welcome. This podcast exists and you are listening to it and we hope you enjoy it. Yeah. I should say I've got a metaphorical gun being pointed at me from off the metaphorical screen held by a anthropomorphized version of basic needs under capitalism, reminding me that the show is made as a labor of love by me and Aaron. It takes a lot of time to do and it takes a lot of effort to do. And we're dreaming of someday being able to scale up and get a producer so we're not doing all the research, editing, and so on by ourselves. And to that end, we're asking people if they have room in their hearts and their wallets to sign up on Patreon and join our Patreon community among with the 900 or 1,000 others who are doing so. 
get access to all of our bonus episodes, our archive of back episodes, access to the Discord community. It makes a huge difference with your donation of $6 a month. It makes you a beautiful genius. Unless you want to not be a beautiful genius, and then you can avoid that. Up to you. Also, Zoe Baker has her own Patreon, which we'll link as well. One of the things we do on our show is through the magic of audio editing, we create scenarios that never existed. We do improv comedy and sketches. And I just want to demonstrate the power of that power imbued in us through our Patreon communities. It gives us access to libraries of sound effects. And I'm just going to use my magic powers to make a horse appear out of nowhere. And I'm just shoot some sparks from my fingers and a little, oh, there it is. That is a big wild horse that is uh, neighing a lot. Wow. And I say, hey, let's name this horse Malatesta and let's take it for a ride around the podcast silently as the interview <laughs> continues. Anytime you hear us ask a question, you can imagine the silent horse has went by the microphone at exactly that moment for exactly the right time for us to speak. Maybe that. Maybe is it wasn't good. a silent horse. It's a horse that continues to make the noise, but just imagine that I've edited all that noise out while we're asking the questions for your listening pleasure. Right, yeah. yeah. Sometimes there will be a background noise that we remove in order to have the audio quality. So that is an accurate thing to imagine. Except it's inaccurate in the sense that we're not on a horse, but you can imagine that we actually were, and it's been removed already with the magic of editing. Whoa there, horse. Hey, hey, calm down. Yeah, we're... uh... Yeah, he doesn't want to be edited out. Sweet, sweet, wild Malatesta. I wanted to make him disappear, like, by magic, but it feels so cruel. Look Look at his beautiful eyes. Yeah, once you bring a horse into existence through magic, I don't know if it's right to just make it disappear again. I feel like now you're stuck with it. Yeah, this is our pet horse, Malatesta, and we shall ride it in a way that makes noise, but is eventually silent for as long as this show may exist. Yeah, and we may or may not reference it again in the future. So um, yeah, let's welcome go. to the show and uh, let's start the interview. Yeah, without further ado, let's do it. Today, we're joined by Zoe Baker. She's a historian of anarchism who also makes YouTube videos and a bread tuber who has read the bread book, someone who <laughs> actually, Zoe, you're just mentioning before we started recording that bread tuber originally referred to a small group of anarchist YouTubers. This is not related to our discussion today, but it's so fascinating to me that this is a term that started as referring to anarchist YouTubers and then became a broader thing to encompass liberals and in just any sort of left YouTuber. How did that happen? You saw this firsthand. So yeah, originally BreadTube was just a term in the anarchist subreddits to refer to anarchist YouTubers, hence it being named after the conquest of bread and like all the bread book memes that were going around at the time. And then someone created a BreadTube subreddit and then BreadTube became whatever people posted on this subreddit, which was any left-wing content creator they liked. And then this terminology then spread outside of Reddit all across the internet, such that it's to the point where most people were confused why it's named after the conquest of bread, given all these people included in it, you know, aren't anarchists, they're liberals or social democrats or socialists of various kinds. And the reason why it was named after the conquest of bread is because it originally referred to people who were influenced by the conquest of bread, namely anarchist communists. But over time, words change and people are then confused about the terminology because they don't know really obscure subreddit history. (laughs) Yeah, that is fascinating. That little snippet of ethnographic internet history, I had no idea. Because I was just thinking, it's so great that we actually have YouTubers now who 
actually know the bread book, you know, that we have so-called bread tubers who are actually involved in anarchism, but it's actually the opposite, that it started that way and then distorted in this other direction. But now we do have a really sort of more vibrant anarchist YouTube community, which is awesome. Hopefully, at least the mistake has made some people look up what the bread book is and maybe check it out, check out some passages. So for people who aren't familiar with Malatesta, on the top level, who was he? So he is an Italian anarchist who became an anarchist at the birth of the anarchist movement in Italy and really the birth of anarchism as a social movement in the first international when he was a teenager. He came from a kind of quite well-off background and was in a medical school, but then leaves due to his political activities. He becomes radicalized by, among other things, the Paris Commune of 1871, and then immediately throws himself into various forms of class struggle which are going on. He participates in several failed insurrections. He spends a huge amount of his life in prison. He spends a huge amount of his life traveling around the world in exile from Italy because he plays a really key role as a writer, as a speaker, as a debater with other political tendencies, and also as an activist, as an organizer. He would participate in trade unions and help create them. So he didn't just write theory. He was an active participant in ongoing struggles and social movements around the world because he traveled all over the place, including to Latin America. He goes to Egypt at one point when Egypt is invaded by the British to try and fight the British Empire, but ends up getting arrested with some of his friends before they're able to actually do that. But it does show his commitment to internationalism and to anti-imperialism. When people think of the big names, the big men with beards, I call them on my head, it's like Bakunin, Kropotkin, the ones that usually come to mind. And Malatesta is like the third one, who, in my opinion, is the best in terms of clarity and in terms of his ideas, but unfortunately hasn't been given as much attention. Yeah, I know when I was first getting into anarchism, it was definitely Kropotkin, Bakunin. I didn't hear about Malatesta until much later, and it is really great writing. Zoe, do you want to bring us through what this program is and the context in which it came to exist? Okay, so this is very complicated, and I'm just going to give a really short summary, which is that there's this whole period in Italian anarchist history in particular in which there's a divide between what are called organizationist anarchists and anti-organizationist anarchists. So the organizationist anarchists are in favor of formal organization, participating in trade unions, and the struggle for immediate improvements like the entire day, while the anti-organizationists are against these positions. And they're not literally against organization, the sense of people in groups doing things together. They're just against formal organizations like federations with congresses and congress resolutions and delegates and so on. And they just advocated affinity groups, which are small groups of people which form for a specific purpose and then dissolve afterwards, or they are kind of more or less permanent groups and they you know can do all kinds of different things and both the organizationists and the anti-organizationists advocated affinity groups the disagreement was do we have affinity groups plus federations or just affinity groups and the anti-organizationists were also generally opposed to participating in trade unions and struggling for immediate improvements although some were in favor of participating in strikes if it gave them an opportunity to engage in armed struggle or to persuade workers that they should actually leave the trade union and organize independently of them so there was this really huge divide in Italian anarchism. And the reason why this is relevant to the anarchist program is that there was a Italian anarchist paper in America called The Social Question. And it was run by a affinity group called the Right to Existence Group in Patterson, New Jersey. 
And they were mainly organizationalists, but the editor of the paper, who's called Sinsabila, he was an anti-organizationalist. And he started using the paper to promote his anti-organizationalist ideas. And the right to existence group wasn't happy about this. And it culminates in Sinsabila uh, resigning as editor, and he then goes sets up his own anti-organizationalist newspaper. But they need a new editor of the paper. And so Malatesta happens to have recently escaped from being imprisoned on an island and is needing to be as far away from Italy as possible. And so he ends up in America and is elected as the editor of the paper. And then the anarchist program is published in the first issue of The Social Question under Malatesta's editorship. And it's kind of a crystallization of the organizationalist anarchist position and the ideas of the right to existence group. And this comes out of a whole period of Malatesta developing these ideas after the kind of demise of the first international in Italy. There's various attempts at armed struggle in Italy, which are unsuccessful by the Tenancus movement. And this kind of results in Malatesta trying to go back to basics and figure out a way forward. And one of the things he's insisting upon is what's called the organization of the anarchist party. Party in this period just means a group of people with shared aims. And so it's called a specific anarchist organization, an organization composed exclusively of anarchists. And he's trying to organize this. And the anarchist program is him laying out these ideas that he's been kind of working on for some time during various struggles and periods of exile outside of Italy. Now, fast forward, and the anarchist program, which is originally published in 1899, is then adopted in 1920 by the Italian Anarchist Union. Manatesta at last managed to help create a specific anarchist organization in Italy. It had at most 20,000 members at its height. In some parts of Italy, its paper was the most widely read among workers. And they adopt the anarchist program, but the version they adopt is slightly modified from the 1899 version, although it's basically exactly the same. And that's the version that's on the anarchist library and is in the Vernon Richards anthology from which it's taken, Malatesta, His Life and Ideas. So that's the context. It's this statement of organizationist anarchism as endorsed by the Italian Anarchist Union, which was a organization composed exclusively of anarchists. And the reason why it's called a union, it doesn't mean trade union, because they don't speak English. So they don't call trade unions unions. They use various terms like a group of resistance to capital. It's like one term for a trade union or, or a syndicate. While a union of anarchists just means a bunch of anarchists. It's a group of anarchists. And so, yeah, that's what the anarchist program is. And as a result, it's a really good summary of not just Malatesta's anarchist theory, but also this kind of theory of this broader segment of the Italian anarchist social movement, because it's a program for an organization. It's this really succinct to the point summary that nails down anarchist basics and revolutionary strategy in a kind of easy to follow way. Yeah, and it's really a great piece. And when I was prepping for this, I was trying to pull out quotes and I just wanted to highlight everything. It was just almost from start to finish, a banger. <laughs> I've been actively trying to increase awareness of Malatesta because I don't think he's well known enough among English speakers compared to some of the other names, even though I think he has you know, many, many strengths and is worth reading. Beard's not big enough. Yeah, his beards are never that big. He often rocked a mustache or kind of like a short beard. He never had the Kropotkin like, I'm asserting dominance with my beard energy. <laughs> We now go to Kropotkin and Bakunin teasing Malatesta for his lack of big bushy beard. 
Hey, Bakkenen, how you doing? Nice beard. Kropotkin, thank you. You too. I was just admiring my beard in the reflection of this pond. That's something I like about having the big serious thinker beard, you know. I just can't respect anyone with a little baby face, you know, a little non-masculine bald face. It's just <laughs> embarrassing. Speaking of, hey, hey, Malatesta. Look, there's Malatestas over there. <laughs> what a loser. Hey, mustache face. Hey, bald chin. What's wrong with your chin, bald chin? What a freak. How much time do you spend shaving that chin, bald chin? Nice mustache. Is that, is that, um, you suck. <laughs> Got him. Loser. Can't grow a beard or what? Small beard. Small beard. Nothing. No beard. Was the wild scraggly beard too anarchist for you? Your contributions to anarchist theory are just gonna fade. Like your mustache fades into bald face. Definitely not a popular lasting anarchist writer like we are absolutely not look at this beard over here think you're gonna make it into the historical canon without one of these hey do you want to press our two big beards together and then yell more taunts at malatesta oh yeah they would form like one big super beard of our two beards yeah that's great yeah maybe just push them together like this whoa look mm, at that huge nice. beard hey loser can you do this oh no you can't malatesta because you don't have a oh, beard poor little baby face can't do it would you chin get scratched by our beard if we even tried would it hurt if the three of us did this all together would you be the odd one out the weird one what are you are you even really an anarchist because you got a liberal chin all right you're kind of spitting on me i'm gonna pull back from the joint beard thing here yeah that's right that's right walk away what a loser what a loser yeah i mean some people are destined for greatness other people are just destined to be nothing baby-faced losers. Say what you will about Marx, and I've said a lot. He's got a decent beard. Gotta give him that. Absolutely, yeah. I'd team up with him to bully some bald-chinned mustachio any day. And that was Kropotkin and Bakkenen bullying Malatesta for his lack of big, bushy beard. And now back to our show. Let's hop into the Anarchist Program by Erico Malatesta. I always like you can pick up a lot from the first line and where a line just really hits right out of the gate. I feel like Malatesta kills it here. We believe that most of the ills that afflict mankind stem from a bad social organization and that man could destroy them if he wished and knew how. So this is the key point Malatesta makes over and over again, which is that the problems aren't individual bad rulers. It's not like there are evil capitalists and that's why the world is terrible because they're evil bad people, which then in turn results in the idea that, well, we just have to replace them with nice capitalists who want to help people or politicians who have empathy and aren't just power hungry people. But the problem is, is that the ills in society are caused by social structures which result in people developing in certain ways independently of their will or intentions and often just bring out the worst in people. And so therefore, if we want to change society, you have to change social structures rather than thinking that we can just replace the bad rulers with the good rulers because there are no good rulers. Rulership itself makes people do awful things independently of their intentions due to the very institution itself and its own internal dynamics. Because a recurring thing about test is that it will have a sentence that seems really clear but then when you think it through, there's actually a huge amount going on in it. So in this opening sentence, you know, he's making this entire point about how social structures are the root of social problems. So therefore, to change society, we have to change social structures, which means also that social change is a matter of us creating new social structures, which produce different kinds of people, are composed of different kinds of social relations, and therefore have different consequences in the kind of society we live in. 
And it just continues up from there and it works through in this first thing explaining we live in a society which conquers and dominates and exploits people. And from that, we have these consequences and these consequences, things like ignorance, crime, disease, depression, racism, war. And this is all rooted in this, he writes here, the domination of landowners and property owners. And as a result of that, it creates suspicion amongst human beings about each other, insecurity and fear. Yeah, right out of the gate, he's building this arc of this is the way it is. And these are all the consequences. This is all the negative things that come out of this. And this way of being needs to be abolished, that we stand, our aim and objective is to abolish this way of being. There are two really crucial points he makes in this bit. So the first point he makes is, as it were, that the history of hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. So he says that we've arrived at the present state of society through a series of complicated struggles, which includes both associations of the oppressed united for defense. So, you know, the poor, the oppressed, etc., and the conquerors for attack. So the ruling classes organizing together in their shared interests. And that this history of class struggle, which is one of conflict between the oppressed and the oppressors, has culminated in where we are. And second of all, he explains anarchist class analysis, which is that anarchist class analysis holds that class is both a relationship to the means of production and a relationship to the means of coercion. So you have capitalists and landowners who are members of the ruling class in virtue of the kinds of property they own and the kinds of powers they have based on that ownership, such as being able to hire and fire people, to exploit people, people have to work for them who don't own property, so they're workers. That's a kind of economic class. And then at the same time, you have a political ruling class, what he calls government, in which people such as politicians, kings, heads of the secret police, high-ranking bureaucrats, they have a certain relationship to the means of institutionalized coercion, namely the state, that then enables them to impose their will on others through coercion and law, and crucially, that they have distinct interests from the economic ruling class. So the, the state does serve the interests of the economic ruling class, such as by enforcing private property rights, but they also have distinct interests of their own, which means it's possible in this model for there to be conflict between, for example, politicians and capitalists, like uh, politicians can want to continue a war for their own ideological reasons, while there might be some businesses who are like, this war isn't good for our businesses, so can you stop it, please? Then you kind of conflict between them based on that. Although, to reiterate, he does think that the state has reproduced the power of the economic ruling classes and that they do serve the interests of them. It's just that the model is more complicated than this one-to-one relation between them. And that, I think, is a really helpful insight of historical anarchist theory. There's both a political ruling class and an economic ruling class. And crucially, they aren't necessarily like mutually exclusive. You can be a capitalist who becomes a politician, Donald Trump, for example. So it's not saying that you have to be one or the other. You can be both. They're broad categories, broad social groups. Something else in this opening section that stuck out to me, and it remains sort of a theme, it comes up a few times, that I was just like, yes, Malatesta, is when he brings up science and the creation of an official science which serves the interests of the ruling class and negates true science, and later brings in the right to science as something that the working classes of the world deserve. I love that. When he was writing, there was a lot of early pseudoscientific criminology based on measuring people's skulls. And this included scientific theories about how anarchists are inherently criminal and dangerous due to the shape of their skulls and various things. And Manitesto actually writes articles making fun of these theories because of how silly they are. But it is this key insight that under existing conditions, science isn't neutral, it's connected to power and can play a key role in reproducing that. 
such as say you're not just a geographer, you're a geographer who creates maps in order to better enable colonial resource extraction, or you're not just a biologist, you're also engaging in certain kinds of racial science, which legitimize systems of white supremacy and so on. And that this isn't legit science, this is pseudoscience. And in a free society, it should be the case that science is able to actually fulfill its true potential because it's no longer being entangled with reproducing systems of power. One of the last bits in this section is he kind of summarizes what an anarchist society is. So he's gone through history of class struggle. This is what existing society is and why it's bad. And then he goes through, well, where do we want to go? And so he goes through a few key defining characteristics of an anarchist society. So there's abolition of private property and land and raw materials and instruments of labor. And the reason why is that the private ownership of these things is what is the social basis from which arises uh, relations of exploitation and domination in the economic sphere. And so therefore, in order for everyone to be free, you have to have equal access to the means to reproduce yourself to live. And therefore, land, raw materials, means production should be owned in common so that everyone has that real possibility to develop themselves and to reproduce themselves without having to be subordinated to the will of a master, namely a capitalist. And then we have in the political sphere, the abolition of government, so institutions which are based on laws imposed by violence, and therefore no police forces, no prisons, in favour of a society based on free association. What Malatesta calls the free association of federations of producers and consumers. So this is the idea that you have these general assemblies in different spheres of society which self-manage themselves rather than having a situation where you have, say, a ruler who tells everyone what to do and imposes their will on everyone through violence, ultimately, instead of people freely, voluntarily associating with each other as equals and making decisions in these general assemblies in which everyone has a vote and is able to take part in decisions that affect them and thereby self-manage their lives. And he throws in, guided by science and experience. Yes. <laughs> So for Malatesta, for engaging in these decision-making processes, he thinks this is the scientific method taken from the field of research, that of social realization. So what he means by this, and this is the point he makes elsewhere, he makes it several times, but what he means by this is that anarchism is this experimental approach where we don't have all the answers about how to create a great society, but we can figure that out through engaging in a process of trial and error. So we try certain ways of organizing or making decisions or solving a particular problem, such as how best do you organize a hospital? How best do you organize schools? And we see what works in practice. We have empirical evidence. And then we use that to try and improve and develop better models of how to realize our values, like everyone being free or equal or there being certain kinds of cooperation. And this is an open-ended, never-ending process. It's not like we arrive at the perfect society and everything's great. Instead, it's that an anarchist society has to be continuously reproduced over time. And a core part of that is this process of continuously experimenting, trying new things, and trying to reflect on how we're currently doing things and seeing if there are any flaws or limits or ways in which it unnecessarily oppresses people or unintentionally harms people. And then we notice that and then can come up with solutions to fix it in order to further realize anarchist goals. And it's something we have to continuously do. And yeah, I find a helpful insight. Yeah, nailed it. He also advocates, crucially, the abolition of all borders and universal human emancipation. And he doesn't just advocate changes to the public sphere, but also changes to the so-called private sphere. He advocates the reconstruction of the family, as will emerge from the practice of love, freed from every legal tie, from every economic and physical oppression, from every religious prejudice. 
if I were to give Malatesta some feedback as a member of the Italian Anarchist Union in, in 1920, I would have insisted this include an explicit reference to patriarchy, which he does talk about in other texts, but it's not to me talks about enough, and I think it should have been in the program. No one in the 19th century is perfect, even Malatesta. And there's one last thing which needs to be emphasized in this section, which is that so people listening who are nerds <laughs> might have noticed that the description of an anarchist society talks about the collective ownership of the means of production and land, but it doesn't talk about distribution according to need. So an anarchist communist society based on the principle from each kong to their ability to each kong to their need. The reason why the anarchist program doesn't include an explicit commitment to anarchist communism which Malatesta was one of the inventors of in the mid-1870s, was because there was a big feud and debate in the 1890s and 1890s about anarchist communism, in which some people who were called anarchist collectivists rejected it. And Malatesta, in response to this debate, came to the view that, well, we should just learn to put aside this really minor difference and instead focus on what we all agree on, and since the role of the anarchist program is meant to be this program for the organization of anarchists, it has to be uniting collectivists and communists on the basis of what they all agree on, so they can therefore effectively act as an organization. He therefore chooses not to include an explicit commitment to anarchist communism in the program. And that's why, it's because uh, Malatesta was himself an anarchist communist, but the function of the program was wider than that. It was meant to bring different kinds of anarchists together in order to effectively engage in class struggle as a social movement. That's really interesting, yeah, because I noticed that number four on his list here says, the means of life for development and well-being will be guaranteed to children and all who are prevented from providing for themselves. So it seems like trying to include as much of that provision of need thing as possible without going the whole way. Well, that was a core collectivist position. So the collectivists, you know, this is in like Bakunin, it's in the Spanish collectivists. They advocated workers receiving the full product of their labor and thought communities would figure out for themselves how to do that. But one of the main things they advocated was labor vouchers. So you work a certain amount or do a certain kind of work and then you receive labor vouchers, you then spend those labor vouchers at the store. But they always had the caveat that if you are, say, really disabled or old or a child, you will just have everything given to you without having to earn labor vouchers to do so, or you'll be given a set amount of labor vouchers automatically as like an allowance, or, you know, say, the equivalent of sick pay. They always had caveats like that. And so that's one of the points that actually collectivists and communists agreed on. It's just the communists are like, well, we want this, but for everyone, <laughs> we want no labor vouchers or anything like that, and just full distribution according to need. Right, right. Interesting. I love to see a shout out to children and the rights of children in anarchist literature. Thinking about the development and well-being of children is something that has been a motivating force in politics for me that's pushed me further in these more radical directions and thinking about the way that our society lets children down. So I love to see that. And I also love talking about scientific instruction for all to advance levels as just one of the basic things that you cover in here. <laughs> I agree so deeply with that. And it's something that you love to see it. It's reminded me of an exciting anecdote, which is Malatesta had, I'm pretty sure it was a child that he'd adopted, or it was the child of someone he knew who he looked after when he was living in London. But what happens is that the child comes home from school, having been beaten by the teacher. Malatesta responds by going to the classroom and beating up the teacher in front of the children. <laughs> And he then has to go to court for having attacked the teacher in response to the teacher beating the child. So Malatesta, he protect, he attack, 
he was in favor of youth liberation and very much stood up for the rights of children to not be abused by an adult in an educational environment, which was, you know, absolutely widespread at the time. Child abuse was just absolutely hugely institutionalized and normal. So it was uh, very, very bold for him to do it. Yeah, it's great. And yeah, it is so messed up how it's like, oh yeah, it's totally legal to hit the kid, but you hit the person who hit the kid, whew, yeah, and then you're going to court. court. Yeah, see you in court, man. Within the children-led justice system of child court, using physical force or violence as a punishment against children is considered especially heinous. Justice for such offenses rests solely on the shoulders of an elite squad of child prosecutors. These are their stories. Ordering the court, ordering the court. <clears throat> Your Honor, I'd like to present the case of the prosecution. Uh, by all means. I think that this case is clear and that all of the children here today, all the children of the jury, have seen enough evidence here to convict. We've heard testimony from multiple kids with good track records of not being liars that this teacher abused and physically harmed multiple children on multiple occasions. This is a crime against childkind and a crime against society. Yeah! yeah, yeah. Right. Send him to jail! Send him to jail! Murder. Ordering the child court, please. <coughs> What's at stake here today is not just whether or not this one teacher is held to account for his actions, but the message that this verdict will send future generations. Thank you. With the defense, explain. Thank you. My defendant is a teacher who has always tried to teach us all about math and spelling and history, and their track record has shown that they are very concerned about our well-being and how we grow. Teacher's pet. Traitor. Teacher's pet. You'll burn for this. Order. Order. I don't want any more outbursts. Continue. Uh, my defendant has made mistakes. There were mistakes made in the classroom and by many people. Many people have made mistakes on math and spelling and on other issues. And I think my dependent innocent. I rest my case. The prosecution rests as well, Your Honor. One last thing. Would the defendant like to speak for his crimes before the jury deliberates? Uh, as the defendant's counsel, I'd just like to say we advise against this. <clears throat> I am going to not speak as per the advice of my counsel, my child counsel. Thank you. Welcome back to Action Child News. We're your hosts, Billy and James. Great news today from the child court system. Another abusive teacher has been found guilty of harming children. It's not great news that the teacher beat the children. It's great news that the teacher was found guilty. All of the best evidence shows that it actually increases the amount that children misbehave when you inflict physical harm on them. And just thinking about it, 
Isn't it always kind of wrong to hit someone? Isn't that what they try to teach us? Yeah, that's what I always thought. And uh, in our society, historically, these teachers have not been held accountable until the child court system was set up. So I think it's a step forward. I concur. And even as a child who's critical of the child court and child prison system, I think if he were found not guilty under the current system that could set a precedent, that would be damaging. So it's complex, but in this case, I think the guilty verdict is, is correct. Although like many children, I dream of one day not having any sort of child court system. I think we need to abolish adult court first before we abolish child court. We now go to the streets for a reaction. I'm so happy to see that this child beater is being put away for good. Look, I'm glad he was found guilty, but I'm just saying that I think all the childs that he beat with the rod should be able to beat him back. Fair's fair. I think it's a symbolic concession, and we're not going to see any further advancement on the issue of child liberation. This is something they're just giving us uh, to tide us over, but it's insufficient to, to make up for what's been done in the past. I think he should have been found innocent. I believe children should be hit. Well, there's always one in every bunch, eh? Yeah, lots of different diverse opinions amongst children. And we try to reflect that on our show. Next that, up after the break, apple juice versus orange juice. The eternal debate settled at last. Stay with us. So in the next section here, ways and means, talking about the organizational questions and emphasizing that Malatesta did not seek out to be a dictator to push this on everyone from on high. Yes. So in this section, there are three main points to emphasize. So the first is, and this is the really, really important one, is he articulates the unity of means and ends. This is the core foundation for all anarchist strategy. If you don't understand the unity of means and ends, you don't understand anarchism. It's that foundational, that essential. So what is it? Well, Malatesta explains it as follows. So he says, it is not enough to desire something. If one really wants it, adequate means must be used to secure it. And these means are not arbitrary, but instead cannot but be conditioned by the ends we aspire to and by the circumstances in which the struggle takes place. For if we ignore the choice of means, we would achieve other ends, possibly diametrically opposed to those we aspire to. And this would be the obvious and inevitable consequence of our choice of means. Whoever sets out on the high road and takes a wrong turning does not go where he intends to go, but where the road leads him. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is that if you have a particular goal, namely an anarchist society, a free voluntary society, then you have to engage in means which can actually get you there and therefore have to be constituted by forms of activity which develop people and produce the kinds of social relations which lay the foundation for arriving at this kind of society. So the consequence of this, which is then the second thing he talks about, is that you can't force people into an anarchist society because an anarchist society is a free society in which people self-determine themselves. That's the end. Therefore, you cannot use the means of, you know, we seize state power, become a dictatorship and force everyone to live the way we want them to. Because if you use that choice of means, even if your goal is an anarchist society, you won't end up creating one. Instead, you'll create an authoritarian society that will self-reproduce itself. And therefore, if you want to create a self-determining society, you have to persuade people that, hey, we should organize in this much better way. And then they do. And then it becomes its own thing. This isn't to say that Malatesta wasn't in favor of armed struggle or self-defense. So he thinks that you have to use violence to overthrow the ruling classes. 
And that's a choice of means that's necessary to reach the ends of anarchism, because in existing society, the power of the ruling classes is maintained through violence, through the police and army. And, you know, when he's writing in the 1890s, it was recently the case that the Italian state had literally just fired cannons at protesters. This is beyond, say, the kind of police brutality which you might see in England, or where people get beaten up and so on. You know, and obviously in some cases people getting killed, but it's not on the same level as the Italian army firing cannons and killing hundreds of people and wounding far more. And this happened very recently to Manitesta writing this, that you have to use violence to overthrow them. He really means this because they're in a situation of armed conflict with the ruling classes. Therefore, armed struggle is necessary for workers to emancipate themselves in order to overcome the physical force which blocks their way, namely the much greater violence of the ruling classes. But crucially, you can't use violence to force the majority of the population to live in a socialist society. You have to persuade them. You have to engage in actions which provide an example to them and inspire them to live differently. Otherwise, you won't actually be creating a socialist society because people won't be self-determining their lives. Oh, that bit about the cannons is fascinating. It's such a good example, too, of why it's often so useful to get some of that surrounding historical information. Because, yeah, I mean, honestly, if I had one criticism of this essay, it probably would have been there was a big focus on emphasizing that aspect of it. He uses the word force a lot. We must use force. Force will be met with force. They will oppress us with brute force. Um, but, yeah, it makes so much sense that he would be focused on that, learning that history about the ruling class firing cannons of people in recent memory. I noticed in the first section, one of the other quotes that stuck out at me is Malatesta says, from this situation, all these horrible things are coming up from the patriotic spirit, race, hatred, wars, and armed peace, sometimes more disastrous than war themselves. I thought that was such a nice little poetic turn about the violence of the state and reproducing itself through police and so on. And that canon anecdote, I mean, that is just a brutal way to treat any person, let alone protesters fighting for a better world. The person who ordered the firing of the cannons, he was then awarded the highest military honor by the King of Italy because of he'd done such a great job massacring people. And so then in response to this, the anarchist who actually knew Malatesta called Breschi, he then goes and assassinates the King of Italy in retaliation for, among other things, this occurring and the general in question being given military honors and massive medals for killing people protesting and trying to emancipate themselves. But that's what states do. When it comes down to it, states organize violence to maintain the power of the ruling classes through the police and the army and enforce private property rights. So Malatesta thinks we have to create a social revolution. The social revolution is when the working class rises up, they expropriate the capitalist class and establish communal ownership and means production land, and they also abolish the state. They overthrow the political ruling class and the economic ruling class through some kind of armed insurrection. Now, the issue then is that, well, we have to prepare a social force which is capable of doing such an enormous thing as overthrowing the ruling classes. This is not an easy thing to do. And the reason why is this problem that Malatesto articulates, which I call the problem of socialist transformation. It's much later actually been talked about by a variety of Marxist academics who've kind of reinvented this idea independently, but aren't aware that actually Malatesto had already talked about it and solved it in the 19th century because they haven't read him, which is like, you know, fair enough. So what is the problem? The problem, Manitesta states as follows. Between man and his social environment, there is reciprocal action. Men make society what it is, and society makes men what they are. And the result is therefore a kind of vicious circle. To transform society, men must be changed. And to transform men, society must be changed. 
So the institutions that we live in produce particular kinds of people and particular kinds of social relations, such that when you're, say, working at McDonald's, you're not just doing what you're told to by a manager or a boss, you're also engaging in activity and so are transformed through that process. The capitalist controls the kind of person you're becoming because they control the kinds of activity you're engaging in. And when you're engaging activity, you're simultaneously changing yourself. So for example, you're learning how to follow orders and engage in customer service and deal with the horrific stress and suffering that is working in the fast food industry. Instead of, for example, you learning how to make decisions in general assemblies, learning how to horizontally associate with others as equals. Or similarly, with the state, you learn to say, wait for a politician to save you, rather than engaging in direct action yourself. And therefore, institutions produce the wrong kinds of people for both overthrowing the ruling classes, but also crucially creating an anarchist society. Existing society produces people who reproduce existing society, namely class society. So this is this huge problem for my attester is that, well, if this is the case, then how on earth can we generate a mass movement that can actually achieve our goals, can actually overthrow the ruling classes and create a free society if through just sheer habit and day-to-day life, they're learning how to live in the exact opposite kind of way. If you think about all the ways in which working class people oppress one another, as opposed to just being subject to the oppression of capitalists and so on. Now, Manitesta does have a, have a solution to this problem which is the idea that, well, if it's the case that when people engage in activity, they also change themselves, they develop new abilities, they acquire new ideas, they gain new motivations. Well, if that's the case, then we living under capitalism can engage in activity, which is in some way radical revolutionary, and thereby produces people who are themselves radical revolutionary. So when you engage in direct action, You're also learning certain things and changing yourself through that experience or learning that the police actually aren't there to protect you. They're there to beat you up when you try to emancipate yourself or you're learning that your boss doesn't care about you. And if you want to improve things, you're going to have to stand up to your boss collectively with other workers. So in changing the world, workers at the same time can change themselves and they can also create new social structures which are constituted by relations which enable this process to occur. So, for example, you have a trade union and it's structured in such a manner that how it makes decisions and is organized is, as far as is possible, the same as would exist in anarchist society. And so through participating in this trade union, you're not just attending meetings, organizing a strike, you're also learning how to live in a free society through your kind of micro experience of horizontal association during the course of the class struggle itself. Uh, This idea is later called prefigurative politics, but historically they don't use the term. And it's the idea that we build the new world in the shell of the old. And the key reason why is that this is how we get out of this vicious cycle of dominant structures self-reproducing themselves, is that, well, we create alternative institutions, which we participate in, and through doing so, learn to live in a freer society and thereby to actually be able to create one. We know how to make decisions horizontally. We know how to not oppress others. We know how to hierarchically associate. And just like in an anarchist society, this again has to occur through this constant process of experimentation and trying out new things, new ways of making decisions and so on to try and in so doing, not only create a better organization under capitalism, the state, but also actually try to figure out how we could potentially organize in a future anarchist society. So the way Malatesta expresses this whole idea is that progress must advance contemporaneously and along parallel lines between men and their environment. 
So human beings act, they change themselves, they change the environment simultaneously. You know, you organize a strike, you learn how to do so, but also you win certain immediate improvements. So you change both those things at the same time. And that in turn creates a new social space in which this cycle can happen again. Say, because of your successful strike in one workplace, now other workers in the same industry are also going to go on strike and they are going to in turn be changed as well and also change the environment. And so you get these kind of feedback loops as the idea, which create a virtuous circle as opposed to the vicious circle that reproduces class society. It's fascinating. It's like I've learned more about anarchist history over time. Some of these observations and things that come up more than once in different people's experience, like I think the first time I heard of this concept through the anarchist lens of people being conditioned by the society that they're in was in Bookchin's break from communism. He was a devoted communist growing up. He was a red diaper baby raised by Communist Party members. And he had come to the conclusion through experience and I assume through being exposed to theoretical ideas around this that people in workplaces were being conditioned by the command and control structures of the workplaces to look for that command and control structure in their revolutionary or political struggle. But that was one of the key experiential insights that he had as a union organizer himself in deciding that he was going to become an anarchist. It's rooted in that experience of seeing it, that these sort of same ideas bubble up in different contexts across time of recognizing these patterns. Yeah, and anarchists historically would critique bureaucratic hierarchical trade unions precisely in these terms that they are mirroring the hierarchy of class society and thereby won't be effective instruments of emancipation because workers won't be learning how to make decisions themselves, take initiative, live freely, because instead they'll be learning to subordinate themselves to bureaucrats who then develop distinct interests from the workers rather than actually representing their interests and end up mediating between capital and labor rather than enabling the direct struggle of workers themselves. And this is one of then the key reasons why they advocated unions which organized in a fundamentally different way without paid bureaucrats even or as horizontally structured as possible. And it wasn't just for anarchists as how we organize. It was for these practical reasons of, well, if when we engage in action, we change ourselves, then what kinds of social relations can we create in our trade unions, which will enable workers to unlearn their socialization in class society and prepare themselves for creating a socialist society without classes. This is maybe a good way to get into the next section that we're dealing with. It's heading number three, the economic struggle. Yeah. So given this whole theory of revolutionary practice, Maltest has been articulating, he thinks, well, so if this is how we get out of the self-reproducing nature of class society, how is it that we practically actually create a mass movement that can launch the armed insurrection, which overthrows the ruling classes? And Manatesta's answer is the struggle for immediate improvements in the sense of modifications to existing society, like reductions to the working day or increases in wages, or also certain kind of political liberties, like say abortion rights, or I guess to use a modern example, opposing racial segregation in America. And the idea is that through the struggle for these immediate improvements, you can generate this kind of mass movement, which is organized on an anarchist basis and engaging in direct action and thereby you're developing both the kinds of people who can overthrow the wound classes and create an anarchist society, but also crucially the social force which can actually do it, namely an organized, coordinated mass movement. And he thinks one of the main areas for that mass movement to occur is the economic struggle, namely the struggle of workers against capitalists through trade unions, which Manchester was a supporter of. He helped create many, he worked in many. 
So one of the things he talks about, which you need to know some context to understand why he's talking about it, is that during the 19th century, there's this popular idea called the iron law of wages. And this is just massively widespread throughout socialist movements of all kinds, anarchists, Marxists, etc. And it's the idea that any increases in wages will be lost by increases in the cost of living or due to increases in population, such that there's this tendency that's inevitable towards workers being paid the bare minimum to survive. Now, if this is the case, many anarchists, in particular anti-organizationists, arrived at the idea that, well, we should just not bother with doing trade union struggle because what's the point? Any victories we might win will be temporary, they won't last, it's pointless, so therefore we should focus on other things and trade unions aren't worth our time. And Manitesta in the anarchist program responds to this by saying that, well, actually, no, wages are the product of class struggle between workers and capitalists, and so can be changed and fought for, rather than them being the product of this inevitable iron law of wages. And so that's kind of the context for why Manitesta thinks it's so important to talk about that, is that his ideological opponents within the anarchist movement, the anti-organizationists, believe in it. So in order to try and persuade them of it being worthwhile to participate in the economic struggle, he has to counter this idea of the iron law of wages. Welcome to Old Timey Telephone Warrior Radio Theater. Hello, you've reached an organizational anarchist in the 1890s. It's me again, the anti-organizational anarchist. You absolute drunkard, calling me at all hours of the night. <laughs> I'm drafting up manifestos by candlelight. Now you leave me alone. You think you can organize my actions? I'll call you whenever I want. I simply think the labor unions are a bastion of working class power. It's only illogical that we should push ourselves through them. The iron law of wages says no matter what we do, under capitalism, wages will go down to the minimum necessary. What could we completely, in all circumstances, avoid the use of these workers' power unions? Fire! Fui to that! We've got to be serious! Trade unions are as useless as those fancy pants and coats the wealthy like to wear, you addle-brained lummox. An insult from this flapdoodle! And a hornswoggler, too. You're as bad as those restaurants that give you free lunch but charge up the nose for drinks. Now, I'm as much for a reasoned and dispassionate exploration of the differences of values as anyone, but now you keep up that lip with me and I'll get on my bicycle over there to suck you in the nose. How do you like the sound of that? I love it. It's passionate. Chaotic sounds anti-organizationist. Let's fight. Let's physically fight. Oh, I'll physically fight you in, a, in the drop of a hat, in the drop of your bowler hat. Do it. And, Come and, over here. And we can do it underneath the oil street lamps of the big city, the cobblestone streets outside the intellectual cafe. Come on down. Me and my whole affinity group will be here waiting for you. You're going to rue the day that you made this call, you bastard. I don't think I will. The recent invention of the telephone is the best thing that ever happened to me. Call you whenever I want. Oh, you got a smart mouth, huh? You want me to come over then, huh? Yeah, why don't you let your fisticuffs do the talking? Talk, talk, talk. You're all talk. You're as talkative as a church bell. I'm hanging up now and I'm, I'm riding my bicycle over there right now. Uh, we both know you won't. <laughs> I'll be over there momentarily. I call you every day and you never come fight me. Well, I'll be heading over now, so good day to you, sir. So why don't you hang up then? You keep saying you will, but you don't. Because you're not coming. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Old Timey Telephone Warrior Radio Theater. I really like the kind of balanced approach he took to participating in things like trade unions. One of the things I highlighted, he says, 
we also shouldn't exaggerate the importance of the struggle between workers and bosses conducted exclusively in the economic field. And that before workers can ever expect to receive the full product of their labor, the bosses are going to be appealing to government to force the workers to remain in the state of wage slavery. Like unions and winds of this matter aren't going to get us to the society that we want on their own. Yes. So Manitesta supports trade unions and economic struggle, but the key claim he makes over and over again, which is sometimes mistaken from opposing trade unions, which is actually not what he's saying, is that trade unions are not sufficient to achieve revolution. The economic struggle is not sufficient to achieve revolution. If you're just organizing strikes in workplaces, that by itself isn't going to culminate in overthrowing the ruling classes. And so in order to do that, you have to engage in political struggle against the state. So you think Seneca should participate in trade unions, but they should also maintain an independent existence outside of trade unions within specific anarchist organizations, just like the Italian anarchist union, which this is the program of, and that they should participate in these social movements in order to kind of push them in a radical direction, spread anarchist ideas to people. So during the 1920s, there was this period of mass militant insurgency in Italy, and Manitesta and Avanicus played a key role in this period of actively trying to encourage and organize workers occupying factories and arming themselves so that they would be able to expropriate the ruling classes and actually launch the revolution. This ends up not happening, spoiler warning, because the main large trade union, which is affiliated with the Socialist Party, ends up going for a really minor reform. And then a bunch of workers drop out of the struggle, which means the ones who are still there occupying with guns ready to go are like, well, we don't want to die, so we don't want to risk it. And so the movement, to cut a long story short, ends up not going towards a full social revolution. But crucially, the anarchists were trying to push it in that direction. And this again reiterates the points that you need the anarchists to push it in that direction, because otherwise trade unions will often not make that final step towards social revolution, especially what were many of the largest trade unions at the time, which were bureaucratic or which were associated with kind of reformist social movements of various kinds rather than the anarchist movement. Although there were, again, a lot of anarchist trade unions or unions anarchists played a key role in, such as the USI in Italy. One of the key points he makes is that the key importance of the economic struggle isn't whatever improvements we might win, which are, of course, important and really good and valuable. He says, whatever may be the practical results of the struggle for immediate gains, the greatest value lies in the struggle itself, for thereby workers learn that the boss's interests are opposed to theirs and that they cannot improve their condition and much less emancipate themselves except by uniting and becoming stronger than the bosses. So again, this all goes back to the previous solution of revolutionary practices. That's the key value of these struggles for immediate improvements is the way in which they can enable people to transform themselves and become radicalized and crucially learn how to emancipate themselves, develop class consciousness. Although he doesn't think that's an automatic thing. Again, it requires conscious, intentional action by workers engaged in class struggle. You can be on a strike in which people don't arrive at that idea, but you can also be in a strike with their key union organizers who are instilling this class consciousness into the other workers on strike and thereby fostering this process of radicalization. So, you know, Manitessa doesn't think anything is automatic. He thinks society is the products of people intentionally engaging in certain kinds of action and consciously and self-reflectively doing so. And this includes the processes by which social movements grow. He doesn't think that like, we'll just do trade unionism and that will automatically create this mass revolutionary movement. He thinks that there's something you have to intentionally try to create 
and that will shape how you choose to participate in these kinds of social movements and the manner in which you do. I love that quote about the struggle being the pointer in itself. It was one of my highlights. And it's actually happened more than once now that I was in interests of expediency and stuff. I was like, okay, well, I'll just let this move on. And then you're just highlighting the exact same sections I am about this, this stuff. So the economic struggle is tied fundamentally in Malatesta's view with the political struggle. And the political struggle is going beyond fighting for economic concessions and setting one's compass on the recreation of society. Yes. So you fight the ruling classes in general, especially the state, which it's what ultimately maintains the power and domination of the ruling classes. And Malatesta actually elsewhere claims that the economic and political struggle are two aspects of a single struggle against class society. He doesn't think it makes sense to view them as separate struggles. They're one and the same because capitalism and the state are this kind of interconnected social system which feeds off each other. So therefore, the struggle against capitalism necessarily requires the struggle against the state because it reproduces capitalism. And the struggle against the state necessarily requires the struggle against capitalism because states create systems of class rule in order to maintain their power as well. And so therefore, you have to fight both at once. And therefore, there are actually two aspects of this single struggle, which workers have to engage in to achieve their emancipation. Now, when Malatest was writing, the phrase political struggle was often used to mean electoral politics, parliamentary politics. We have these big political parties, they put up socialist candidates, the socialists enter into the state, they pass reform laws, and then we build a social movement through this electoral process, amongst other things. Even the most orthodox of social democrat or Marxist in this period didn't just advocate electoral politics, they advocate other things. But it was one of the main things that they advocated and engaged in. And this can then result in confusion where people think, well, anarchists are against electoral politics, so they're against political struggle. And that's just not the case. They're in favor of political struggle, but they just think you have to engage in it outside of and against the state. And this crucially, this isn't just overthrowing the state, it's also influencing it. So a point Malatesta makes is that since government today has the power through the legal system to regulate daily life and to broaden or restrict the liberty of the citizen, and because we are still unable to tear this power from its grasp, we must seek to reduce its power and oblige government to use it in the least harmful way possible. But this we must do always remaining outside and against government, putting pressure on it through agitation in the streets, by threatening to take by force what we demand. Never must we accept any kind of legislative position, be it national or local, for in so doing we will neutralise the effectiveness of our activity as well as betraying the future of our cause. So anarchists, for example, in Germany struggled to achieve abortion rights under Weimar Germany and would help or uh, actually give illegal abortions to women. They would distribute birth control. They would educate women on their biology and also actively try to change the law itself. But again, without engaging electoral politics through direct action, through struggle from below. And here's the key thing I think my tester makes, which I think is very relevant, is that if you enter into parliament in order to try and kind of further these goals, you're actually enabling the co-option of the entire social movement. So it will neutralize the effectiveness of our activity and it will betray the future of our cause. And if you look at all the social movements that have just been absolutely ruined in America by people going like, we need to work within the Democrat Party or we need to funnel things into the ultimate end goal, which is, say, having a progressive political candidate for the Democrats. So many social movements have been ruined through this kind of recuperation absorption into parliament when you can actually achieve changes to 
what political rights we have and what the state does without entering into it. And often if you try to enter into it in order to change it from within, you don't change it, it changes you. And it has wider negative effects on the social movement that you're connected with because it's no longer an oppositional force to the ruling classes. It's now actually being absorbed into these systems of power and thereby will cease to be concerned with the ultimate objecting of overthrowing it and achieving emancipation and will over time become more and more okay with having these systems of rulership in the first place rather than, say, being fully committed to overthrowing them. So you can see this with examples of you go from we need to abolish the police to we need to defund them or to, you know, maybe we should give them body cameras and more training on interpersonal conflict, which in turn results in police brutality not actually being ended or affected in any kind of substantive way. And that's the direct cause of the way in which these institutions recuperate and, and neutralize social movements, which happened in the 19th century as well. And Manitesto was aware of this, and that's why he's making this point. Yeah, this is a point that I've been convinced of over the years. And one of the things that I've noticed that I think just it's such a strong argument for why it's beneficial to remain outside and to build principled organizations that can remain and push from outside is just noticing the way that different people react to electoral partisanism and the sense of like, you can express your values very clearly. But then once it's tied to a vote begging program, then people kind of they're not able to hear it just as ideas anymore. Now it's like, oh, those are the ideas of X group or Y group. And I don't trust X or Y group based on my experiences with these institutions letting me down. And then you're not able to connect with people from across wide varieties of different social strata, different experiences of government and stuff like that. Whereas the ideas themselves are very strong and people can be convinced of the ideas in themselves. But when it turns into a matter of people feeling like they're being propositioned for votes, they're no longer able to think as clearly about the actual ideas being presented. And that's just something I've noticed so many different times in seeing how ideas get vulgarized and brought into the political systems that people carry these strong experiences and biases towards. And that's just one component piece of why I think that this is fundamentally correct, that there needs to be these strong principled outside pushes. And then you get the benefit too of what they used to do a lot more was being able to play political parties off of one another. Because if you're doing entryism within the Democratic Party, then it's like, okay, first order of business is we put the Democratic Party in power. But if you're pushing against everyone on all fronts, then it doesn't matter who's elected, you can still continue the same struggle. And you don't get the defeatism and the feelings of hopelessness caused by the inevitability of losing at least half the elections, if not more. And it's also another important point to make is that it can result in social movements are sacrificed for electability. This happened historically, actually, where workers want to engage in militant strike activity. And someone's like, yeah, this will make us look unelectable and bad and scare potential voters away. So can you not until after the election? And obviously, after the election, they have a new reason to oppose it, which is what the party has to look good. And for the sake of electability, you end up actually sacrificing all your radical principles and also crucially sacrificing the thing that actually is effective, which is militant direct action workers emancipating themselves rather than waiting for a politician to do it who inevitably won't be able to keep their promises or betray them or will only manage to do a tiny amount compared to what they might have imagined before they actually entered into the, the situation. And, you know, this is the point I test makes with respect to the political struggle. So he says that when the people meekly submit to the law or their protests are feeble and confined to words, the government studies its own interests and ignores the needs of the people. When the protests are lively, insistent, threatening, the government, depending on whether it is more or less understanding, gives way or resorts to repression. But one always comes back to insurrection. 
For if the government does not give way, the people end up rebelling. And if the government does give way, then the people gain confidence in themselves and make ever-increasing demands, until such time as the incompatibility between freedom and authority becomes clear and the violent struggle is engaged, uh, namely a social revolution. And so what Matt Tester is saying in this passage is that it's not just that lively protests are a necessary way of achieving social change, given that the government just ignores peaceful protests. There have been so many peaceful protests over so long, and the government ignores them, isn't affected by them, because it doesn't actually make it difficult for them to do their day-to-day -day functioning. But if you actively prevent the day-to-day -day operating of institutions... To give an example, you block ports or you do massive strikes that totally disrupt the economy. Well, yeah, when you disrupt the daily functioning of society through engaging in direct action as a mass movement, then that forces the ruling classes to either give in to your demands or oppress you, which can in turn result in the cycle of workers responding to the repression with more radical demands or responding to winning the demand even by wanting to go further. And Manchester hopes that this can culminate in a wider upheaval. But again, he doesn't think this will just happen. It has to be driven forward by intention, by deliberate actions, by conscious anarchist activity coordinated through a specific anarchist organization and participator in wider mass movements, in particular trade unions. This brings us up almost to one of my favorite quotes from the whole piece, which I think I'd first heard from a listener of the show pass on to us is everything depends on what the people are capable of wanting. Yeah, It's a little sentence, but it packs a lot of punch. Because I think that really does highlight the way in which he's talking about conscious human beings, just like you and me, rather than thinking in terms of a kind of abstract model that has its own mechanisms. He's thinking really concretely and practically such that if you demand everything, you're in a stronger position to negotiate for more minor things than if you start off with the minor thing. But the mistake a lot of more reformist people make is that, oh, we should go for the most tiny little thing first because that's realistic. And it's like, no, you should go for the most hardcore demand of an existing society, like abolish the police and be totally committed to that. And if enough people are in favor of it and are able to act to achieve it, then it can actually be achieved. And we've already seen this with previous things where people demanded things that were viewed as unrealistic and unreasonable at the time, like desegregation or even the eight hour day or even the weekend. These were unrealistic proposals that, you know, you should instead go for much minor things. And it's like, no, social movements win by demanding big things and committing themselves to actually achieving them. And that's what you do if you actually want to achieve emancipation. Yeah, it's such a good point that the path to realistic, quote unquote, realistic gains might be to demand the impossible. Then when they try to meet you halfway and they actually meet you one tenth of the way, you're still way better off than if you just demanded the tenth in the first place. Yeah, that's the idea. Although obviously, you know, we, we want more than the tenth. We want the whole cake. We now go to an anarchist meeting debating about cake. Look, I just think we need to fight for a bigger piece of the cake, all right? We're getting let down by society right now. No, you fool. We need to fight for the whole damn cake with all the frosting, all the candles. And, and good cake, too, not a dry cake, you know, a soft cake with a side of ice cream, you know, no compromises on this. You're both fools. One cake is not enough. We need to create our own cakes whenever we want. We need to control the whole damn bakery. No, no, you're all fools. A single bakery is not enough. We need the whole cake supply chain. Not just every cake store, but every facet of every cake under our control. The, the farms, the mills, the trading routes, the whole damn cake economy. 
Uh, hey everyone, I'm with the bread party, and I actually I agree with your spirited discussion about cake, in principle, and I'd love to see people get all the cake they need someday. But we have an election coming up, and we'd really like to run on a kind of more reasonable platform. We're thinking, give everyone one slice of cake on a sliding scale tied to income. You know, our critics, they're accusing us of wanting the whole damn cake, and we just, we really need your support. I'm here to ask if you're all willing to align with our platform just until the election. What do you say? Uh, my parents hate the bread party because you guys like always promise cake, but you never give it. Yeah, that one slice is going to end up as one crumb by the time it gets passed. Do you guys run the bread party as a democracy? Like, why should we limit our political imagination for short-term goals of an organization that's run as a private dictatorship of compromise? It's just like, what the fuck? Look, I prefer the bread party to the triangle party. I really do. And I wish you all the best. But please get the fuck out of here. Yeah, we're trying to have a fight here. We're trying to argue about who's got a better perspective on the cake thing. So just please leave. Okay, well, uh, if the bread party loses, I just want you all to know that it's going to be your fault, all right? No, get, seriously, get out. Get out with that. Okay, just, I hope you know your demands are making us lose. Come on. Oh, that guy's such a dick, and he just, like, yeah. always blames us for his own organizational faults. Fuck that guy. Uh, where were we? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, okay, no, you're all fools. The whole supply chain isn't enough. We need the whole biosphere, the whole natural world that gives rise to the cake, the balance of plant life and nature as a whole needs to be set free. And that was a group of anarchists arguing about cake. Now back to our show. Today's episode of Seriously Wrong is brought to you by a political life hack. So we all know that in politics, when you ask for something, you know, at best, politicians are going to respond with, here's 10% of it. There's a predictable process. You know, you're going to have the right wing, the conservatives say, absolutely not. The liberals going to say, oh, I agree with you in spirit, but maybe let's be a little more reasonable. And the business class, the political class, they engage in a debate over a time period, sometimes takes many years. But at the end of the day, you're going to get a tiny sliver of what you asked for. This is something that I think a lot of people can relate to and understand time and time again throughout history, 10% of it. But what a lot of people don't do is take the clear next step from that, which is just thinking, if we always get 10% of what we ask for, what then should we ask for? Revolutionary political scientists call this the iron law of tenths. And from it has emerged a new theory, a life hack that works every time, which is instead of asking for everyone to get what they need, ask for everyone to get 10 times as much as they need. So you need a home, right? Everyone needs a home. So ask for 10 homes for everyone. Everyone needs a good public transport system in their city. Ask for 10 good public transport systems in every city. 30 meals a day. 10 chickens in every pot. A thousand years worth of clothes for every person's lifetime. If you need climate crisis mitigation and survival strategies in a year, ask for them to deliver it in one month. 
you know, people will say, oh, what if they give in to that and we actually build 10 times as many houses as we need? Won't that be bad for the environment? And you say, what about the iron law of tents? When you put that into effect, what you realize is you ask for these things and you end up getting exactly what you need. It's a mathematical process. It's predictable. Every part of it flows from the last, like chemistry or physics. We want 10 times what we need. No, I can't give you 10 times what we need. I agree with 10 times what you need in spirit, but we need to be more reasonable. And from that, the political and economic tussle, which inevitably ends up right where you need it. Enough for everyone. So there you have it, the political life hack that will solve all political issues and make it so that we can simply ask politicians for things and get the best possible outcome from it. Today's sponsor of the Seriously Wrong Podcast, and now, back to our show. So the final section of the pamphlet is talking about a revolution. This is one of the bits of the pamphlet that's actually kind of changed compared to the original 1899 edition. This is based on the Russian Revolution. So Malatesta thinks that when you have an armed uprising or social revolution, it's not just going to be anarchists. Anarchists are inevitably going to be a minority in existing society because of the way in which it's self-reproducing. And so therefore, there's going to be loads of different social forces participating in any kind of revolution as it emerges, which is empirically the case in all revolutions, like the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Spanish Revolution. There's always multiple different groups launching it or participating in it. And so therefore, for Malatesta, the question is, well, how can anarchists intervene in this wider social process, pushing the revolution towards anarchist goals, the achievement of an anarchist society, the overthrow of capitalism in the state? And well, one of the things he thinks is that we can create large spaces say like a whole region of Italy, where we are implementing the anarchist program on a large scale as a mass movement. And in so doing, we are providing an example to other workers of you could do this too. And then it spreads through people being inspired and copying it. And also crucially, again, you know, persuading people. But he doesn't think you can force it on people, though, again, to reiterate, you should use violence to defend yourself from the ruling classes. But if it's the case that the majority of Italy doesn't want to create socialism, during a revolutionary situation, well, then socialism is not going to be created. However, he thinks that anarchists should still, within that situation, do their utmost to create a space in which this inspirational commitment to socialism can spread and then be implemented. And then there's a feedback loop of the more successful it is, the bigger it is, the more people get involved, and then it becomes bigger and, and so forth. And then you have this full-blown national revolution. This is what happens again in other revolutions, where you have certain key areas which are doing certain kinds of experiments, like, say, creating Soviets, and this then spreads and is implemented by loads of other people independently. And so Mattis thinks anarchists have to be driving forward, trying to create these radical institutions and encouraging workers to emancipate themselves at the kind of forefront of social struggle and crucially armed struggle as well. He thinks anarchists should play a key role actually fighting the state because one, it's necessary and two, because it kind of shows other workers that we're serious, we're effective, you should work with us. And in so doing, they can then learn about anarchist ideas. Another one of my favorite quotes in the piece here is in the conclusion. He says, we want society to be constituted for the purpose of supplying everybody with the means for achieving the maximum well-being the maximum possible moral and spiritual development. We want bread, freedom, love, and science for everybody. Yeah, something which isn't widely known anymore is that one of the main goals of socialism originally was human development. That was like the goal, people being able to develop themselves, being able to reach their human potential, 
their main critique of capitalism was that it prevented people from being able to reach their potential. So, you know, instead of, say, being able to spend your day, I know, learning a classical instrument or becoming an expert on certain kinds of plants or teaching yourself a valuable skill, you're instead working a job you hate for a boss you hate just to pay rent for a flat that is awful to live in. And so therefore, you're not able to develop yourself and a socialist society should provide everyone with equal access to the means to develop themselves. Therefore, production has to be organized in this socialist way based on social ownership and such that everyone is able to have equal access to these things. And therefore, it's not just there's a small bunch of people who are able to do what they want of their day, like, you know, children of rich people or billionaires. Instead, everyone is able to develop themselves and become the best people they can be. Yeah, it always is just a bit weird to me when I see socialists or people who want a much better society, but their vision of a much better society still includes most people having to go to work all day at jobs they don't like in order to meet production quotas. That idea of each person being able to develop themselves maximally, I feel like kind of gets lost sometimes. And I think it's so important. Well, yeah, because Anarchists historically advocated a four-hour workday. And the idea was in order for everyone to be able to fully develop themselves, they need access to certain things which have to be collectively produced by society. So obviously, if there isn't food, if there isn't public transit, if there isn't healthcare, you can't develop yourself because you're dying of diseases, you know, you're living in a terrible house, or you're starving, or you lack water, etc. So there are certain kinds of labor, which is the prerequisite to you developing yourself. Therefore, they thought that everyone has an obligation to engage in that labor, but it should be as nice as possible. It should be as short as possible. And crucially, you should do different kinds of activity. So they thought you shouldn't just say, be a cleaner. That unpleasant work should be distributed across people. So everyone does a bit of unpleasant labor like cleaning, rather than it being the case that there's one person whose role in society is to clean, which means they're not able to develop themselves. So they didn't want a rigid capitalist division of labor. They wanted people doing lots of different kinds of labor. And they also wanted to kind of break down between the division between what you might call work and non-work, where instead, for example, you're in a garden, hanging out with your friends, growing food, singing songs, and that's meeting your four hours a day of socially necessary labor to ensure everyone has the things they need to flourish. But it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like wage labor. You're engaging in self-directed activity. You're developing yourself. You're having a nice time. And it's not its own separate sphere distinct from the rest of your life or distinct from being creative or playful or hanging out in the way that in our society, there's this really rigid division between you're on the clock at work with your boss. You hate it. And you come home and you watch whatever you can on your screen to numb the pain of existence till you go to bed to do it all again. They want the exact opposite of that. And part of it is also to do the kinds of technology that were available at the time. So it might be the case with modern technology, it's not even four hours a day, it's less, or you know, far more can be automated now than was possible in the 19th century. And again, when they're writing, there's still huge parts of the world that are overwhelmingly agricultural societies. Most of the population can't read. So it's a different context. People sometimes just false assumption that they were all advocating like, you will work in the factory and it will be fun because you're making decisions in a general assembly. Yeah, no, they were against that. And it's unsurprising they were against that because lots of them were people who'd worked in factories who knew it sucked, who knew it was bad. And therefore, in the societies they envisioned, they wanted that kind of work to be made as pleasant as possible, to be as automated as much as possible, and to be as little of it as possible. And that this is something we should keep striving for with improvements in technology over time. 
so that you can really achieve that goal of human development where labor becomes, to quote Marx, not only a means of life, but life's prime want, where crucially it's not this separate bad thing from the rest of your life. It's one of the things you do during your day. I had written here to ask about how this is relevant to the modern day. I think it's abundantly clear the ways this is relevant <laughs> to the modern day. But I am curious, you touched a bit on this, of maybe some ways that the unique historical circumstances that we find ourselves in technologically and politically, ways that these ideas can be adapted and pursued in the modern day in, in ways that are relevant to the times that we're in, beyond the obvious. So if I were to write the anarchist program for the 21st century, I would want to really be emphasizing climate struggle, you might call it, in which the exact same principles that Malatesta is talking about, where you have mass movements, they engage in direct action, they're organized in a prefigurative manner, that creates a social force capable of launching a revolution, and they impose pressure from below, outside and against the state on both the economic ruling classes and the political ruling classes to win their demands. But where these demands aren't entire working day or increases in wages, although obviously those things are worth struggling for, but also an end to the fossil fuels industry an end to the policies and institutions which are causing climate collapse. And we have a really short amount of time to do that in. Some people think because of that, well, oh, we have to focus everything on getting the right people into office. It's like, no, the entire history of socialism is like, this does not work. This is a bad idea. And given how short our time frame is, we should go for what's effective, which is direct action outside and against the state by mass working class social movements that disrupts the daily functioning of social institutions such that the ruling classes are forced to give in to our demands, irrespective of their intentions, irrespective of what the capitalists who pay for their political campaigns and essentially legal bribery want, and that this has to be the key focus of contemporary social movements, given how little time we have. Whatever happens, there's going to be negative ecological changes. And so the question now is, well, how can we make it so the least bad situation occurs? And in order to do that, we have to take action immediately and as quickly as possible, which means applying this historic anarchist strategy to contemporary problems, namely the ecological crisis. And obviously, I think it should also be applied to all kinds of different systems of oppression, racism, of police brutality, as I talked about earlier, and also, you know, patriarchy, transphobia, etc. How to actually concretely do that is something that people have to obviously figure out themselves. But I think these ideas from the 19th century can be a key source of inspiration of like, there are other ways of thinking about politics and approaching political strategy and social change than the dominant ones in our society of, say, you know, lobbying or charities or peaceful A to B marches that don't do anything. There's a really rich tradition of self-organized working class struggle and ideas which they developed through their own experiences of trying to change the world, which we can listen to and learn from, and also, of course, update and modify and improve based on our immediate situation, new knowledge we have, and also the distinct problems we have to overcome. It might be frightening to take out on a course where not everything is well-defined, like an IKEA guide that you can piece it together, but I feel like it's more exciting in a way too, and it's more fun to be part of a process where knowing that through experience and through coming together, that there's frontiers ahead of us, things that are yet to be defined in figuring out this process. I find that exciting. Kropotkin once said that, you know, anarchism provides no ready-made cookbooks for social change. You don't follow a recipe, you have to figure it out. Although again, we can have broad strategic guides which enable us to navigate our situation. And that's why I think it's really worthwhile to read Malatesta to gain some insight about that because he's this 
really experienced organizer and militant who also is crystallizing the knowledge of the wider social movement he's a part of. It's not like Manitesta comes up with all these ideas. He's having chats with people in the right to existence group or other Italian anarchists or not just Italian anarchists, but also, you know, French anarchists, English anarchists, Russian anarchists, etc., and gaining insights from these struggles and incorporating them into his own ideas. And it's this kind of repository of treasures that I think it's useful to draw upon. Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Zoe, and sharing your study with us. I feel like I've gotten so much compressed wisdom from these different sources and this experience, the experiences that culminated in the writing of this program and the study you've done on the context and other things. This has been a really, really enlightening discussion for me. So I imagine that our audience probably feels very much the same. Well, thanks for inviting me on. I hope I explained everything clearly in a way everyone could follow. Well, I'll say I think you really killed it. This is awesome. For people who want to hear more from you, where can they find some of your other stuff? So you can follow me on Twitter at Anarchopack. I have a YouTube channel called Zoe Baker, where I have these long videos explaining different aspects of anarchist theory and history, including other podcast appearances, if you prefer more chatty content rather than my more like formally written videos. And if you don't want to listen to me, <laughs> slowly read out the script, you can go onto my blog, anarchopack.com, where you can instead read me. And excitedly, I also have all my page references. So if you want to look something up, you can. And yeah, that's how you can find me. I'm currently working on a book, which is my PhD thesis, which is on the revolutionary strategy of anarchism in Europe and the United States between 1868 and 1939, which includes a lot of Manitesta, <laughs> although not just Manitesta. A lot of the things I've been talking about on this episode are drawn from my research and the content of my PhD. So get hyped and I'm working on it. <laughs> it explains everything I've been talking about, but more systematically, more in depth and way more topics. And one last point I forgot to make is that if you liked Manitesta's Anarchist program, read the full thing yourself. It's on the Anarchist library. And if you want more Manitesta in your life, which you absolutely should want, the best Manitesta anthology in English is the Method of Freedom Anthology. There's a free PDF on Libcom, and you can also buy a cheap copy from AK Press. It's kind of a selection of Manitesta's texts from across his entire life. So you get to see how Manitesta's ideas develop over time based on his experiences of class struggle. And everything he wrote was a short pamphlet or short article. So it's really good if you're tired and overworked and can't be asked to deal with difficult theory. You instead read four pages of very clear Manitesta. It gives you a lot to think about. And then you finish a single text and can then move on to another one or have a break. So it's really suitable and good for a lot of people who might otherwise be put off by trying to read dense historical theory, Manitesta's historical theory, but it's clear, it's accessible, it's short, it's written in plain language, and you can gain a lot from it. Awesome. We should have some supporting readings, some other links as well. Check that out in the description and definitely visit Zoe wherever she is on the web. And yeah, really, really appreciate not just coming on the show today, but the work you do, not just today, but in following you on Twitter and elsewhere, you've exposed me to a lot of ideas that have helped shape the way I feel about politics today. So well, that's nice to know, because when I post into the void and I don't know how the void feels about it, the void is pleased. <laughs> <laughs> We now go to the highest office of the Abolish Monday movement. Ah, another day of advocating for abolishing Mondays and giving people a four-day work week. It's a tough job. 
being the leader of this organization, but someone has to be selected by lottery to do it. And, you know, some days it's hard, but I always try my best. Isn't that right, Garfield? I like to talk to my big Garfield poster up there. Got a backwards hat, skateboarding, thinking something sarcastic. It's a beautiful vision, reminding me what, what Mondays could be. Hello? Mr. Monday, Lissa, uh, you've got a critic here. Someone who wants to criticize the Abolish Mondays movement. Should I send them in? Absolutely. I'm always up for a spirited discussion about these ideas, and I've yet to meet a critic who didn't end up admitting that they also want Mondays off. So send them in. Hey, hey, whoa, nice office. Well, that's kind of... Oh, thank you. What's your favorite part? Is it the Garfield chair, Garfield phone, Garfield poster? I know there's multiple posters, yeah. but the big one. I mean, I think that one in particular, the oil painting, the revolutionary oil painting, that's definitely what ca- captured my attention. But I really like the one that looks like the V for Vendetta mask because Garfield already has that kind of smirk. It really works well. Really striking look. Beautiful, and it, it means a lot to me. Yeah, definitely my critique is not of the Garfield aesthetic. Look at him. He's on a skateboard, backwards hat. What's he thinking? Is that- you know what it is. It's a sarcastic thought. Oh my god. That is exactly what Monday should be like. Yeah, no, I'm on that front I've got almost no critique. Really? So you I'm not a monster. You're a critic of our organization, but you agree that we should abolish Mondays. I thought yeah, I, I mean, was gonna I... have to argue to that argue you to that point, but hmm. No, no, I'm the sort of other critic, the doesn't go far enough type. Oh, um, you think, we, think we should that... abolish Tuesdays through Fridays as well? Look, you utopians No, no, I'm not even going I mean yeah, I mean, that does sound nice. Abolish Mondays through Fridays. That's tempting. But no, I mean, the basic idea along that spirit, I think Abolish Mondays proposal is a little bit too pragmatic in terms of it is sort of meeting the defenders of the work week as it currently exists halfway. When, I mean, obviously, I think we're probably both in agreement about this, right? Which is if we did abolish Mondays, you wouldn't be want to be done your work. You wouldn't say, hey, now we can pack things up a 32-hour week that's good enough. Like, Yeah, you're right. It's just the start. It is just the start. Right. So I guess my argument, and this argument is rooted in an argument advanced by Zoe Baker, Malatesta, and you know dozens, if not hundreds of other people throughout history, is basically, if you want the whole cake, you should ask for the whole cake. And it's actually going to cause better results in the end. I think Malatesta has a quote saying, we're against reformism, not because we're uninterested in reforms, but because reformism poses not just a barrier to revolution, but also poses a barrier to the reforms themselves. And I think the Abolish Mondays movement, as it currently stands, is a little bit more reformist than it needs to be in that front. And that it might be better to pick up on the anarchist tradition of demanding a four-hour workday and sort of hybridizing it with the Abolish Mondays. So Abolish Mondays comes to encapsulate not just the removal of a day of the week to a four-day week, but the shortening of each of those days by half to a four-hour day, so for a 16-hour week. And as a bonus, if we wanted, we could talk about cycling labor through that to make sure that you know this is work that people have to do that encompasses a variety of things which are sometimes more or less pleasant it's separated amongst people so we're not you know putting hard labor on the same people over and over again if abolish mondays could mean all of that then i think i would support it now look you know that sounds nice to me too but i um you know that you're making such good points could i ask you to be quiet for a moment and i just want to consult with the garfield poster by, by all means, please. 
Hagarf, I don't mean to interrupt if you're thinking about lasagna or anything, but I just... What do you think about this proposal? Is it too much to ask for four-hour workdays in addition to Mondays off? Oh, yeah. That goes way too far. I'd recognize that sarcastic tone and the real meaning behind it anywhere. Garfield, you've done it again. All right, objector. I'm in. Let's do it. Abolish Mondays is now in favor of a 16-hour work week. Awesome. Oh, that's so great. That's so cool. (laughs) It means that we don't have to all organize to kick you off the table, metaphorically speaking. Hey, look, if the organization demands it, I would be all for it. You know, I'm only here to serve as leader as long as people want me and never would want to overstay my welcome. You know, Vox Populi, Vox Garfield. That's what I always say. And so the Abolish Mondays organization successfully accepted some feedback which would help them to eventually achieve not just their immediate goals, but their long-term goals. And successful they were, eventually reforming society in the image of their beloved cartoon mascot. Well, friends, the high-powered turbines at Seriously Wrong headquarters are now winding down as we get to the end of yet another episode. But it's been a lot of fun, and Zoe was just an awesome guest, hey? Like, I feel like I learned so much from her today, specific details, and like, I don't know, I love the story of Malatesta beating up a teacher. Like, I'm not generally in favor of beating up teachers. That doesn't thrill me in itself, but the context is like, holy, that's really funny. No, yeah, protecting children, like, you know, I'm... Technically, I would say Malatest, if there was another way you could have went about that, you probably should have, but you know, I'll probably give him a pass on that one. Whoa, whoa, Malatest of the horse. He's not talking about you, please. That's an impatient, beautiful wild horse. Yeah, if you want to beat up a teacher, Malatest of the horse, I would say you probably shouldn't because horses are much stronger than humans and you might right. you might kill them. Yeah, and horses might not have the same social discretion. No offense. I'm not, hey, whoa, no offense to tell the details about when and which teachers uh, should be beaten up. That is something that I'm not even sure I want to give to people who have a lot of the more nuances of it. Hey, whoa, whoa, it's no insult. And no insult to horses to say this malatesta of the horse. Horses have different skills and abilities and expertise. But I'm just saying I wouldn't even necessarily give that right to people in general because we're all capable of making mistakes about when and where to use violence. And uh, if we make the wrong choice in using violence, Malatesta the horse, I'm just explaining quickly, then we'd run a risk of doing something that's horrible in itself. So it's something I would be hesitant to encourage in any context, although that story does bring me a lot of joy. And I want to assume, I assume the best in terms of the details I don't have for my own sake. Yeah. But I would actually technically prefer child court, I think. And I was just thinking that, you know, for the end of the episode, I was thinking about that Malatesta quote, that everything depends on what people are capable of wanting. And I forgot to mark if that was Malatesta the horse or Malatesta the thinker who said that. No, that was the thinker. That was the the thinker. thinker. Right. Okay. Yeah. The horse has, has written almost nothing. Right, 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 right. And I was just it's thinking being constructed that, through audio editing through our post-production work. So easy to forget that sometimes. But yeah, I was thinking of that quote and just it might be good to spend a bit of time before we end the show, a last little bit of a do here at the end to just talk about what we're capable of wanting. Cause 
when I think about it, I'm capable of wanting a lot, honestly. Yeah. And actually, I feel like over time, the scale of what I've been capable of wanting for society has almost always been in an increasing trajectory, with the one exception being during the coronavirus crisis, I felt some hopelessness in ways that I hadn't felt before, at least not for a long time, and just feeling like, wow, these structures are set up in such malevolent, antisocial ways they cannot tackle. If this is how they treat the coronavirus crisis, how are they going to treat the ecological crisis? Well, the same way that they already are. And even though I already knew that, and even though my hope was never caught up in the actions of authorities, that realization hit me really hard when I'd been socially isolated and getting less exercise for a long time. But recently I had this experience, this wonderful experience where I was reading about people who help one another, in particular Germans who helped Jewish people escape the Nazis during the Holocaust and risk their own lives to do so. And something about reading that stirred this feeling in my neck and my chest of just like, yes, like that is, that's what people are capable of. Like we can't help but help each other. And it brought back this just avalanche of optimism, of remembering to want what you really want and not be caught up and held up in the failures of institutions. And, it, and to treat those failures of institutions as the bedrock, the basis for your hope. So I guess, what are we capable of wanting? What should we be capable of wanting? I mean, right off the bat, what occurs to me is I think a society that is free of ableism, sexism, racism, transphobia, homophobia, class divides, and capitalism itself. That's kind of a big thing. It encompasses a lot, but on one scale of analysis, it's what I want, all of it. An equal society, a free society, a democratic society where people are free to flourish and live their lives and grow and hope and change and build and play together. Right. Yeah. And But if we want to get that, we have to remember we need to ask for 10 of them. Right. <laughs> we want 10 directly democratic, ecological, library socialist, anti-ableist societies that address the history of colonialism, misogyny, racism, and slavery in a meaningful way. A commune of communes where people are paid 10 times according to their need, 10 times more than their need. Where everyone gets 10 votes on every issue. <laughs> And where we don't overspend the resources of the planet to ensure that everyone gets what they need by unlocking new modes of complementarity, ways that by working together, we can get more from less, like the lending library. And we want to do this as soon as possible, probably within a week. Yeah, that makes a lot of because sense because I was thinking of asking for it in two and a half months. But if you times that by 10, 10 weeks down to one week. And I think also worth mentioning is I think we need to consider expanding our concept of needs as well beyond just the basic needs of, you know, enough food to survive, you know, not just bread, but roses as well, not just the slice of cake, but the whole bakery, but also considering the spectrum of human need to be broader to include the wholeness of human beings, our, our need for knowledge, our need for community, our need for care, attention, someone to listen and forgiveness and all of the things that make life worth living need to be through institutions of people coming together, delivered 10 times over wherever it's needed. Yeah, not just our base physical needs, but our emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and social needs as well. All of the needs, they all count. They're all part of what we need to have a good life. I mean, I'm, I'm capable of wanting that. 
Yeah, I definitely am capable of wanting that. And I know because I already want it. So you couldn't want something that you weren't capable of wanting. And there's no inevitable force that is definitely going to bring us to that outcome, but it is an outcome that we can co-bring out together by standing together in ethical solidarity and working for thinking about it, talking about it, and working towards it. It's something that I, I really think the fuse is already lit on a better society, and it's just our job to keep the spark alive long enough for us to succeed in detonating our uh, metaphorical anarchist dynamite of a better world. <laughs> this dynamite, of course, does not have fire or explosions, but just has uh, the good things like care for each other and so on. So sort of playing with the trope of anarchism as, as destructive, although that's not, you know, that's, I'm being ironic, just to be clear. This has been the Seriously Wrong Podcast. Thanks uh, so much again to Zoe Baker for joining us. This is an episode that I'm going to be returning to to take notes and think more and look for more places that I can dig around some of the things that are brought up. I'm sure that many of you feel the same about that. And I must say again, as here comes the enormous, invisible, pointed gun from off screen of capitalist necessity, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for donating to the show who does. Um, not thank you to the invisible gun of capitalist necessity, which I actually hold in contempt. But thank you to everyone who gives to the show and helps us make this show happen. With your support, we're going to be able to do a thousand episodes, which will result in, as promised and foretold, 10,000 years of world peace. It might sound fantastic, but it's factually true and an iron law. And I was just thinking, what if the anthropomorphized thing pointing a gun at us is a giant cash register being like, feed me money or you don't get life needs. And we're like, ah, okay, sorry, we have to feed you money. Then we have to ask people for Patreon money. And the cash register is like, do it, do it, ask them. I don't know. That's what I was just imagining while you were doing the Patreon ask. No, I know that is an accurate thing to imagine. Thank you. Good horse, Malatest. A good horse. It, you know, stayed quiet for the entire time we were talking about the Patreon ask and the important stuff before it there. Yeah, such a good horse. Uh, and only for patrons, on the comments of this episode, we will have a link to an MP3 file of horse sounds, which will be labeled malatesta.mp3. So please, if you like our invisible horse, invisible fictional horse named Malatesta, a wild horse, but a well-behaved wild horse, and you want to spend more time with it, well, get on our Patreon feed, malatesta.mp3. Because that's all it really was. It's, it's, a, it's an MP3 file. Yeah, when I was calling Malatesta a good horse, I was imagining patting a horse, but I wasn't actually, because you can't pat an MP3 file. Yeah, not unless you print it out. All right, well, that's all for this week, folks. Have a great week, everybody. All right, so I'm getting on Malatesta. We're both getting on Malatesta, and away we go. Hey, do you ever think that it's uh, immoral to ride horses? Like, I mean, it's probably not the most immoral thing in the world, but do they like this? I don't really know, but I assume that horse lovers would know, and I think horse lovers do ride horses. So that's just my... I think it can be done in a good or bad way, I think. I would guess. Yeah, I'd ask Malatesta, but... He's just an MP3 file. Uh, no, I was going to say he's been dead for a lot of years. I was thinking of the thinker again. but Oh, yeah. No, no that made a lot of sense. Because when you said he's been dead for a lot of years, I was like, what? He's right here. We're riding him. But then you, you specified. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.
有。